Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we pick a new topic in cinema to explore and talk about. And this month we're talking about Humphrey Bogart. And this week we're watching... The Treasure of Sierra Madre. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And welcome to the Film Club. So, uh, The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yes. I really like this movie. I think it's very, very good. And this is your first time seeing it, right? In its entirety, yes. How much did you know about it before coming into it? That there was treasure, Bogart, and the desert. That was it? You didn't know, like, the ending or anything? No, I didn't know the ending. Um, The times I've seen it have been everything leading up to them actually leaving to go search for the gold. Oh, so you've only ever seen, like, the first act? Yeah. I I guess that's the the line we're going on here. What did you think about it? You know, your first time watching it in full, what did you think? I thought it was a really good movie for being a two-hour movie, because most of the movies we've watched have been close to the two-hour mark, but not quite. This one passes it. It's really good pacing-wise. It has a good pace. It keeps you, you know, engaged with the movie. You don't feel like, oh, okay, they're kind of just lulling here. It's No, it's pretty much action from beginning to ending. Do you think like movies like have to earn their runtime if they're over 90 minutes because honestly i think like two hours is like a pretty average movie length for most yeah, of, granted, I, most movies i watch are like long as hell no i i know that's why i kind of make a point of it because for most of you guys you don't know that dean loves loves long movies especially if there's nothing going on in them he'll just sit there for hours and watch nothing Nuh-uh. And, I mean, okay, there's a few movies like that I've I've watched before. Yeah, so I'm never too sure what I'm walking into when I see the runtime on a Dean movie. But yeah, you know, for this one, it works because you kind of have to really explain the story. There's nothing in there that I thought this could have been cut. No, I feel like everything worked in this movie. Really true, because so much of this movie's runtime is in its foreshadowing yeah in how it's telling its story so much of the dialogue repeats itself and comes back around the the movie really echoes throughout itself it also does um expansion on the universe that it's in it's not just our protagonists it's you know people that they encounter people that are related to people that we meet in this movie so it feels like we're in this universe and and, and <sighs> also sad <laughs> Yeah, it's a a pretty sad movie, but the other thing about expanding the universe is, you know, for 1947, it has to kind of explain the concept of rural Mexico to its audience, because this was like a Hollywood production, but it was actually like filmed in Mexico, from my understanding. Yeah, I mean, it was shot in Mexico, and it was filmed in like Arizona, California, Warner Brothers, obviously, but it's the first American film to predominantly be filmed in another country. We talked about that with African Queen last month, or last week. Yeah. Where John Huston really was pushing for exotic location shooting. Yeah. And that was just not a thing in most American movies, if any. He was really mm-hmm. at, like, the forefront of doing that. Yeah, and I think that's what kind of makes Houston cool, is that he really pushes the envelope by, yeah, we could set up a, a set, but th- nothing beats, you know, being out on location and feeling like, yeah, you're out there in the, that mountain range just looking for gold, and there's nothing else around you. You know, I want to talk about John Huston as a director, mm-hmm. but um, let me tell everyone what the movie's about. The back-of-the-box yes, synopsis please. for one of the most uh, famous plots in cinema. Yes. Mm-mm-mm. Because there's gold in them there, Hills, mm-hmm. as avarice <laughs> is in the heart of men. That's on the back of the box, everyone. Ah, I'm, I'm feeling good about that Right. One. Good puns. 
but two hard luck drifters and a grizzled prospector discover gold. And then greed and paranoia sets in. And soon, they must decide what is more important, the gold or their lives. And that's basically it. It's it's the standard thing of three guys go into business together. Yeah. And because of the money they're making, they all start second-guessing each other. They all think the other one's going to steal their money. And Bogart is at the centerpiece of this going absolutely insane. And we have a happy prospector dance. We do. It's the first happy prospector dance. Uh, I wasn't expecting it, but he did such a good jig that I was kind of like, I kind of like this. That was improvised. Walter Houston there, really showing up. Father of? John Houston. Yeah. And let's talk about John Houston real quick. Because what what do you know about John Houston, the director? Not too much. I didn't know that I've seen a good amount of his movies. He was one of those classic Hollywood directors that just made eighty fucking movies. That yeah, because I mean, it's not like now. Good. It's not like now where you know you go into a movie and you know, oh, okay, this is the director, and I follow them on Instagram, and I you know I like this, and this is their filmography. It's it's not like Tarantino who brands every movie yeah. he makes is it's a Tarantino joint exactly. You know? You know, this is, you know, golden age of Hollywood where you remember the movies, the actors, and not so much the directors. Yeah. So that's why it was kind of a shock. We're like, man, he's made a lot of movies that I enjoy. The biggest thing about John Huston, at least to me, and this came up in um, the bonus episode we recorded for this month. Yeah. A little bit with Brandon, who everybody gets to hear at the end of the month. And Dylan. And Dylan. But we talked about the difference between, like, Orson Welles. If Orson Welles decided to stay inside the studio system, mm-hmm. like, if he decided to play ball after uh, Magnificent Amerson's The Strangers, Touch of Evil, if he decided to play ball, what his career would look like. Yeah. And John Huston is really kind of that guy, because he has the same eye for detail. He's a very composed director. Uh, famously, people said... Most directors are like machine guns. They just shoot everything. Yeah. Houston was a sniper. Mm. He would only shoot exactly what he needed. He also shot specifically for his films to be cut a specific way. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't like mess with them later. Like the studios couldn't mess with them later. And he really pushed the envelope for like what you can do in your stories. And it's like he almost invented the cinematic, the cinematic, I can English. You got this. The cinematic anti-hero. Mm-hmm. And Humphrey Bogart is famous for playing these cinematic anti-heroes. Rick Blaine in Casablanca is basically an anti-hero. And here he is his most famous anti-hero. Yeah. But that's the thing. Because this is the Humphrey Bogart show. Yeah. And I do think John Huston directed him to his best performance here in Sierra Madre. It's definitely a great performance. Uh, I know we had this argument a little bit before we recorded this. Where you think that this is his best performance ever it's his deepest performance i think it's the one that shows him with like the most range and him being able to go the most wild i guess mm-hmm. uh i know you're a huge fan of, of casablanca oh definitely and maltese falcon so it's like i usually stick to those two but yeah in this movie you see a lot of range you see that he's just a normal guy mm-hmm. and you just see this descent into madness and yeah, you're going to end up getting yourself killed, and spoiler, he does. Feels bad when we're spoiling a uh, 70-year-old movie. Uh, It's 75. In a few weeks, it will be 76. Oh, there you go. But that's the thing with the movie that is so interesting, because John Huston, he wrote the screenplay. It's based off of um, 
a novel by B. Traven, who mm-hmm. no one knows who that person is. Yeah, I hadn't heard of this person either, but I was like, okay, you know, very cool, based on a novel. I'm surprised you haven't read the novel. I can't find it, to be honest. And also, like, I like the movie a lot, but mm-hmm. uh, I I wouldn't really understand what the novels, like, would add to it, because I think this is a perfect movie. L- again, like, okay. out of the John Huston movies I've seen, this is probably my favorite. But a lot of the reason for that is our cast of characters, you know? Yeah. We have Walter Houston, Humphrey Bogart, Tim Holt. And those three guys are kind of acting at a level that really doesn't show up until like the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know how we were talking about that last week where Brando was signifying, hey, this is new acting. This is method. Like I am on another level than everybody else. Yeah. These are like just like over the horizon like guys we can get really complicated and really dark not every big hollywood guy has to be squeaky clean like jimmy stewart on screen doesn't have to be a musical doesn't have to you know have a happy ending it can be you know a dark serious movie and people will come out to see it yeah i mean this movie they who was jack warner who did the financing and ran Warner brothers oh my god he lost his shit on this movie this movie was taking longer to make than it should have. Yeah. And since they were on location, it was that much more expensive. And that was kind of why I got pulled back into Warner Brothers, the studios, because they're like, you are in a foreign country where we are, you know, financing this movie. We have no control because we can't just send our fixers down to Mexico every day to check on dailies. No. So it was a thing where he was just losing it. And eventually he had to pull the reins in and be like, okay, you've got to come back to either the States or to California and finish this off. And it's like, you feel like you're in Mexico in this movie. And I think that's kind of how it should feel. It shouldn't feel like, ooh, those are the the mountains of Burbank. Or it's like, no, it's like, this needs to feel like you are out, you know, looking for gold in the middle, middle of the desert where you're not safe. And that's the craziest thing about this movie, right? Because if you look at the scenery and how the movie looks and the locations they're at, John Huston made a point. That when they were traveling to location, mm-hmm. it was not the mountain just outside of town. They would go, like, miles out into, like, the desert. Like, out. Like, to the point where most of the time, he was like, we're just gonna camp there because there's no way we're going back to town. That's like a eight-hour drive. Oh, yeah. I mean, they spent months location scouting for this movie. And I tried to, you know, do all the locations just to list them off. I couldn't do it because there are so many locations that they shot this movie in Mexico. So you could see that they really traveled a lot through the country. And then even, you know, here in the States, in California, different parts of our desert here. So this movie really was shot everywhere. But it feels like you're in just one big, vast desert. That's the beauty of cinema, is piecing things together Mm -hmm. to create one idea. And that's why I was saying, you know, you feel the danger in this movie because... You feel just like them where you're out in the middle of nowhere and we're in the early 20s? Or is this the early... This is supposed to take place in uh, February of 1925. That's when the movie starts. But John Huston was like, I'm not going to dress the sets. So the cars are from 1947. It'll be fine, guys. But, you know... I got Bogart on screen. No one's watching the background. That's what I'm saying. The whole danger of feeling like, wow, I am isolated in this desert with no one to help me. Then I have people that might possibly kill me if the animals or the reptiles don't kill me first. Yeah, like the environment feels dangerous. 
that's why kind of like the African queen where, you know, when they're in love, you know, it's beautiful. There's flowers and, you know, ah, sunshine, you know, that kind of feeling. But in we see the wild animals or, ooh, the leeches or whatever else is living in that water, crocodiles. And that's what we kind of get that same vibe in this movie where you don't know where danger is necessarily going to strike, like with the mind collapsing partially. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting and kind of a great part about the movie is how they build up that what they're doing isn't safe. It's not a good thing, and it's almost kind of um selling out to the point of the, the I guess, the point of the movie, how greed is, you know, affects people, avarice, and these guys are trying to make a, a quick buck, quote-unquote, yeah. and trying to, like, cheat the system like we're just gonna go out and we're just gonna pick money up off the ground and it's like the nature's is punishing them for doing that you know that and you think nature's gonna be you know one of the biggest things that they're gonna have to contend with in this movie or the bandits or other people that are there to possibly steal their gold but really the the danger is Dobbs because they go in you know we're partners we're going to go in this equally. I don't need that much money. I just need enough to, you know, be happy for the rest of my life. I don't have to have millions of dollars. And then it's like, dude, your partner is trying to kill you for your earnings. It, but I love that because we don't get Dodds as a evil murderer until like pretty far into the yeah. film. Like over half, over like the half hour, or sorry, not the first half hour, the first half of the movie yeah. like after that hour mark then he's like oh no now you're like dangerous because you were like very paranoid he pulls a gun on tim holt's character mm -hmm. curtain i think around that point in the movie because he thinks he's like found his stash and it's it's really interesting how it goes because it's a very methodical descent into his madness and i i love this because near the end of the movie he turns into a fucking golem oh yeah rings, where he starts talking to himself He's in the crouch position. He's like, my precious. Yes, the mm -hmm. gold. He, he turns That's into That's the gold. vibe I got, too. And, and, it, and it doesn't help that Humphrey Bogart, when he doesn't shave and he's got that wild hair, he looks like some sort of prehistoric man-ape thing. I mean, it's just, it's so weird to see him kind of in that crazed, manic state. But speaking of hair, did you know that was a wig? Was that a wig? I, I didn't want to say anything, but it, it looked weird. Yeah, so I didn't know this at all about Humphrey Bogart, but when I was doing the research for this movie, apparently he was taking this medication to help him and Lauren Bacall have a baby. So he was trying to, like, up his fertility. Uh, up his juice. Yeah, so apparently this medication made him lose his hair. So by the time that he got to, you know, making this movie, I guess a lot of his hair was gone. So they had to fashion a wig for him in the movie. And I kept looking at it. I thought it looked okay. Honestly, it does look pretty good. And that's the thing about a lot of this movie. Everything looks pretty good. Like, our yeah. actors look the part. I mean, they look like they've been out in the mountains for months, just completely dirty from, you know, digging in the mines and just no way to real, really clean up. I, I heard a director talk about this where 90% of your movie is in the casting. Yeah. And 90% of acting is in their face. Mm -hmm. And Humphrey Bogart has the face of a guy who's just lived a tough life. Mm -hmm. He looks like the kind of guy that's lived, like, slept outside. Yeah. And then you have Tim Holt, who looks like a guy who, nice, boyish, kind of good-looking dude, but he looks like somebody who's 
beaten down and mm-hmm. had a rough go. And then Walter Houston just looks like somebody going insane looking for gold in the desert. I mean, I love Walter Houston. The fact that he was like, yeah, you know, I've done this for years and I'll teach you guys how to do it. And this man is just running up the mountain and the two younger guys are just like, this man's half goat. I don't know how he's doing it. And I love that we have this wiser, older character in this movie that's like... Well, wiser is a stretch. Well, wise in the sense that he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And he tells them, you know, you guys think you know what you're doing because you read this in a magazine. I've lived this and trust me. And like, I'm going to give you what this magazine hasn't given you. So it's Which like, is experience. I, exactly. So it's like, I love seeing that shift in the three characters where, uh, where Howard is just, you know, kind of having a good time. He's like, oh yeah, you know, make sure you eat your beans before you go to sleep. And they're dead tired. He's like, guys, you know, it's time to eat dinner, you know, boys. Then <laughs> they're just completely passed out. and he's, He turns into the father role. Yeah. So it's like, I love seeing him where, you know, this has been his life and his body knows what to do. And he's just kind of like, I'm having a good time. And these two young guys are just like, I can't handle. And you just see the mental deterioration of these two men. Yeah. Because Howard is pretty strong throughout the entire movie. See, I, I think that's a big part of the movie that we kind of want to want to talk about is how these three guys change. Like, their arcs mm-hmm. throughout the movie. Because Dobbs is the most serious one. Yeah. He goes from being... You know, down on his luck. Like, he's kind of like a smarmy guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not he's not the nicest, most lovable dude. He's kind of, he's bad with money. We see yeah. that. That's the whole opening. And then he turns into an absolute madman at the end. But Curtin, he starts out as a good, good hard day's uh, pay for a good hard day's work mm-hmm. kind of guy. And in near the middle of the movie, when the cave-in happens, he's like, I can just leave Dobbs in there. Me and Howard can split the money. That's why I love that scene where he just kind of stops walking up to the mine. And it, you see that thought go across his brain like, well, it was an accident. I was over here. He's in the mine. Well, I guess the two of us should just leave with what we've gotten so far. And but- then he goes in and saves Dobbs, mm-hmm. which is another thing where so often Dobbs is like, what have you done for me, Curtin? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if it weren't for me, we wouldn't be out here. And I'm like, he saved your life. At least on two separate occasions mm-hmm. in this movie. Yeah. And and he's he's on the same track as Dobbs. The only difference is Curtin actually has some moral yeah. a character, whereas Dobbs is purely materialistic. And Howard's almost like so removed from it that he, he doesn't I don't even think he really cares about the gold. I think he just wants company. I think he's just lonely. Yeah, because I mean the first time we see him is in the um the flop house. I was trying to think of the name of the it. YMCA? Something uh. like that, yeah. But he's in there and, you know, Dobbs and Curtin just look completely out of their luck. Granted, they were just in a bar fight, you know. Great bar fight, by the way. That took four days to film, I we'll, believe. We'll talk about that after Howard, but I do want to talk about the bar fight. Yeah. So we see them coming into, you know, basically this motel, just looking completely broken and disheveled. And there's Walter just talking to everybody, big old smile on his face, like, you know, this is a great night. I'm having a good time speaking to anybody that I can talk to. He loves the attention. He's like, come on, boys, come around, come around. It's been so long since we sat around a campfire, had some beans and told and told tall tales. Yeah, so we never see that shift in his character of, you know, him going to the dark side. Walter always maintains I don't think he's he's ever crosses over to the dark side, but when the Cody character comes yeah. in and he's like, well, I'm kind of indifferent. We can shoot him or not. I don't particularly mm-hmm. care. Mm-hmm. 
you know and I mean, he invites him to dinner yeah it's almost a thing where howard understands what gold can do to a man's soul and he's seen it happen before yeah. and he's like you know maybe this is one of the good times maybe this is one of the best case scenarios and i feel like at one point howard was in the curtain position yeah. or howard was in the dobbs position like it seems like he's seen this play out and he's like the pied piper calling mm-hmm. them along to go you know relive this trauma again and he's like can't i get one good one out of this mm-hmm. and that's what we get when we have the tent scene when they keep going out to check and one will come back and he's like oh yeah i said he needed to step out and take a walk and the other one gets all paranoid and goes running out there and well where did he go oh he heard you were taking a walk so he wanted to go look for something and just kind of pitting them against each other a little bit Howard's like, I'm not going to kill any of you guys. I don't think I'm going to ever do that. But if you kill the other one, I'll side with the last guy standing. I don't mind. Or, you know, if you get into a fist fight, that might be entertaining for a little bit. And that brings us to the fist fight in the movie, which John Huston in Treasure Sierra Madre, because I said this about African Queen, where it didn't didn't feel like there was a lot of action Mm -hmm. in it. But this one, there's a lot of action in it where that bar fight at the beginning because what happens is Dobbs and Curtin they get screwed out of a pay Mm -hmm. right they go out and they work in like the hot desert at an oil rig for I don't know like six weeks or something yeah and they come back and the guy stiffs them on the pay and then they find him in this bar and they beat the shit out of him and it is a knockdown drag out fight that looks like it was choreographed by guys who have been in bar fights before. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just them, you know, beating the crap out of this guy. This guy puts up a fight, too, so everybody is getting their plate cleaned in this movie. I love that fight so much, because it's not like... I think Jackie Chan said this. I'm, I'm going to keep name-dropping people. Mm-hmm. Jackie Chan said this where he hates American movies, because it looks like none of these guys can actually fight or throw yeah. a real punch. And you, you can kind of see that. A lot of the Marvel movies... You can tell that some of the actors are not martial artists. Mm-hmm. They're not people who can, like, beat a dude up, you yeah. know? But in this, it's like, you know, yeah, Humphrey Bogart's fucking five foot nothing, but I believe he could drop a dude in a, in a bar fight. Yeah, and I mean, you have the two of them working together as a team where uh, Dobbs is on the floor holding onto this guy's feet while Curtin, you know, is, hits is the face, hits the body. Yeah, so it feels like a real fight. I mean, I love that they get the money. They don't take all his money. They take what they're owed, throws the rest of the money back onto the guy, and then gives the money to some of the barkeeper for the mess that they made. Which is weird, because, you know, the whole theme of the movie is this greed, is this Mm -hmm. avarice. And Dobbs' whole character is, man, I'm so down on my luck. I just want to be somebody. I want money. I don't care how I get it. I just don't want to be poor anymore. Yeah. Why do you think he only takes what he's owed and not everything? Because he still has his, I guess, his morals. His conscience is still there where it's like, yeah, you know, I worked this job for six weeks, but all those other guys also work too. So maybe with the rest of the money and after this ass kicking, he's going to go and pay some of these other guys. Maybe. I think it has something to do with um, maybe some of the theming-ish of the movie. Because he does that while he's like in town, in like civilization. Yeah. And we see him go mad when civilization's kind of taken away when he's mm-hmm. in the wilderness. Yeah. And it's like, oh, we are only moral-ish people when we have society constructing mm-hmm. 
how we should act, but when we're out in the wild, out in the wilderness, yeah, you know, we'll kill people for just um, sand in the ground. Like, yeah, that seems totally reasonable. It, it's um, your lizard brain, where, you know, it takes over and it's just, yeah, this person's gonna do harm to me by taking what's mine. Of course, kill him. And it's just like, no, you don't. And it's like, no one's trying to mess with you, but that's just, you know, how bad his paranoia is. Where it's like, I can sleep less than you can. I'll be awake all night. I'll be awake for days. And it's just like... Yes. It's I, like, for what? What does that purpose serve? So when Kern falls asleep, he can take the gun and he can take the gold. And it's like, your plan doesn't work. It does. It it works out for Dodds. Well, it doesn't work out that, for Dobbs too much. It, okay, it works out for him about the sleeping thing, but it doesn't work out later. Even Curtin, with no sleep, was still like, I was still able to see you behind that tree ready to get me. I'm that tired, but not that tired. Which, it felt like two little boys where it's like, you know, I'm gonna get you, you know, no, no, I saw you, you know, not it. I think that's kind of the point of the movie, is they're two kids out playing, you know, Prospector, and now, and the greed sets in, and they're, they're not men anymore, they're not, you know, good moralistic men, they're acting like children, you know? Where it's, you know, why should we share when I could have all? And it's just like, why do you need all when you didn't need all when we first started this? I mean, that's a lot of fucking money. That's probably why. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, I mentioned this like way, way earlier, but I did want to come back around to it. Because okay. did you find it weird of a movie this era that has zero female characters, not even like a love interest somewhere? No, I mean, it, it didn't catch me off guard. I mean, it's not something that I was looking for, mm-hmm. but it just feels kind of like the African queen where the movie centered on these two characters. It feels like in this movie, the, the movie's centered around these three men. Yeah. Even though we see a lot more people in this movie. Because we have, you know, the bandits and we have people that are living oh, in the so, town. No, no, no. The banditos. The banditos, yes. So You, you make fun of me for pronouncing um, tortillas wrong, all You right? do pronounce it wrong. Ah. But, yeah, so it's a thing where we have that much more people in this movie because it's just... So many different locations that people, you know, are in. Because, mm. you know, they have to buy the donkeys and, you know, they're traveling into town. But it still feels like it's just the three of them in this universe. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the whole reason I, you know, say it's like, oh, why are there no women in this movie? You know, that's kind of an, a weird thing. Is there three, you know, poor men yeah. out in the middle of the desert? And it's like, what are you going to do with your money? And I'm waiting for Dobbs to say, so the whorehouse on <laughs> Fifth Street... I'm just waiting for that because that's no, that I feels mean, like a modern take that you would have, right? That's a modernistic reading. I mean, even his reasoning where he wants to buy cigars, light them with $100 bills, and go to a restaurant and send the food back even though it's perfect. That sounds like something that you would hear today. He he wants he wants to be showy. He wants to be yeah. um, ballin', right? Yeah, he, he doesn't want to be like Curtin who he had this experience growing up of uh, working on, I guess, like maybe uh, an orchard reserve. It was a, a peach plantation. A peach plantation where everyone was happy and it was kind of like a family setting. And you see that he's like, yeah, I want to buy property and I want to grow peaches and I just want to, you know, harvest the fruit and just live a normal life. He wants to use money to capture a memory, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's interesting. All three of them want to use the money differently. Yeah. Dobbs wants to use it to, like, show off in status. Mm-hmm. Howard wants to use it for comfort, basically. Yeah. And Curtin wants to use it for 
you know, recapturing a memory, recapturing something that money can't buy. Yeah. And it's almost like each one of them is showing that, well, if you get the money, you're just going to blow it all trying to get something you can't actually have. I mean, Howard's kind of the closest to being realistic, but he finds it without having to spend a dime. Yeah, and Curtin, when we finally talk about the Cody character, he wants to, all of them, you know, give some of their money to Cody's wife. And it's just showing, you know, the character of Curtin. And Dobbs is very, fuck people, more money for me. He's greedy. Yeah. And do we want to talk about the Cody character? Because he's a weird character, because he just comes in to die. Yeah, but I felt <laughs> I felt the most sad about his character. I think that was the, I thought Bogart, you know, going from good to evil in the movie was going to be my saddest thing I took away. Cody's character was the saddest for me, and I wasn't expecting it. Oh, really? No. Because um, the Cody character, he's another one of these prospector guys, but he s- stumbles upon these three and is like, hey guys, you can kill me, send me on my way. Cut me in on the steak? Well, actually, he stumbles upon Curtin when Curtin goes into town to get more supplies. Mm-hmm. And I guess he kind of recognizes, oh, hey, this would be, you know, the stuff that you need when you're prospecting. You're, when you're prospecting. And he follows him out there, which that was another thing in the movie that got me. Because it's scary to be out there alone and during this time where there's just no lights and people are so spread out. But just the way that people pop up in the middle of the night near your campground like holy shit you know just yeah. somebody just standing there watching you all of a sudden i think that's another thing is it adds on to why these guys are so paranoid yeah because not only because you hear like the wild jungle cats mm-hmm. or whatever at least that's what the, they call the, them. the tigers yeah the tigers and roaming the mountains of mexico yeah i'm like i've never heard that before but okay it's probably mountain lions or whatever well, mountain lions yeah but a tiger you're you're imagining like a bengal tiger oh, yeah with like the orange and black streak yeah i'm imagining like a a tiger tiger and i'm like in mexico i don't know like <laughs> they, they have big cats in mexico i mean i think i saw a news story here in california or it was vegas where someone got attacked by a baby tiger that they had illegally purchased and i was just like and I, you can purchase a tiger legally in america for like two grand uh, which reminds which me don't do that no no do that we live no. in the greatest country on the planet no. buy your tiger no. only two grand i know a guy no tigers do not be need to be domestically owned they do not they look adorable no they are beautiful animals but no they do not need to be owned in a regular home so after you buy your tiger and watch treasures here madre <sighs> the thing is is um <laughs> fuck i i lost my place because <laughs> talking about sick ass tigers Okay, so we were talking about, oh, people showing up in the desert. Yeah, people showing up in the desert. Because um, that's the thing. The part about the movie that so gets me with these guys is why they're so paranoid. And it's because it's justified. Yeah. Like, there's bandits on the list. Like, the bandits run up on them. Mm-hmm. And they are so paranoid because if anybody finds out where they are and what they're doing, they all that person has to do is just tell anybody in town mm-hmm. And either a bunch of people are coming up and taking their claim, or the federales are coming and kicking mm-hmm. them off the land, because that's not your land. Yeah. And then they just suddenly appear out of the darkness. The The bandits just appear, mm-hmm. you know, across the desert, and they get into the shootout. And Cody just appears in the middle of the night. And he's like, and then, yeah, he appears out in the middle of the night, and the first thing he's doing is like, hey guys, so, you know exactly why I'm here. I'm here for your money. Mm-hmm. Now... We could amicably come to an agreement where I don't tell anybody about this and I get some money. And 
I love how Dobbs's first thought, Bogart's first thought is, so guys, if we all shoot him dead, none of us can be blamed, right? It's like those firing squads, right? None yeah. of us knows which bullet killed him, right? I just love that that's his immediate <laughs> thought process. That's his thought process the rest of this movie. After that, you're like, that's where he tilts over to being evil. Yeah, because I mean, we're really idling that line. And once we get to the Cody part where he's just ready to kill, it's like, okay. It's like, we're not coming back from this. You are very much over the edge now. What is going to happen? And then that's when we get the bandits the next day or the next morning that show up looking for weapons. And they're like, hey, who who are you? And they're like, we're the Federales. <laughs> and it gets to the greatest line of yeah, the movie. And I didn't know that, that that line was from this movie. Oh, really? No. So when I heard it, I was like, I love this line. I didn't know where it was from, but it's just, you know. Uh, what What's the line? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. It's a good line. It's a good, great line. Good line. Also, a Johnny Houston got in trouble, uh, I guess, with like the production code of Warner or whatever, because they trimmed out the rest of that line, because apparently he starts um, cussing at them in Spanish. I think, ah. he, I think he calls them like a cavron madre, some bullshit. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see why that was cut out of the movie. <laughs> uh. We don't need to go there, but yeah, that's a great line. Didn't know it was from this movie. Because the movie is, like, um, I think it's reached the point where it's iconic to the point of just, you know a lot about the movie without seeing it. Yeah. Because this story has been repeated in, like, The Simpsons, in, like, Family Guy, in uh, basically every TV sitcom. So, do you remember last week when we finished recording The African Queen and we were talking about Looney Tunes? Yes. And we were talking about that great Looney Tune episode where it's, all the big stars of Hollywood, and they're just, you know, drawn in the Looney Tune way. Yeah, yeah, because Looney Tunes was kind of famous for throwing in old classic Hollywood actors as, like, parodies of themselves and stuff. So I thought it was interesting and kind of coinciding with what you're saying, because there was, an, I guess, a Warner Brothers animated short called Eight Ball Bunny, where basically they're playing out the plot of uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. Doesn't Humphrey Bogart cameo in that? Bugs Bunny has, you know, encounters with Dobbs. So it's just this thing where they're, I guess, fighting out over, like, two coins. And I guess the American tourist in this is played by John Houston. So, <laughs> like, we gotta watch this afterwards. Uh, that's That'll be the bonus episode of the of the month, boys. Looney Tunes. <sighs> but, um, Classic Looney Tunes. Uh, but that's but that's the thing about, um, about the movie that's really good like i i I really like this movie because it's just so much of i i guess like the the human condition you know greed it's a very basic thing but um it's a very um compact analysis of the very human condition of greed avarice betrayal uh friendship and uh, and like survival you know it's a it's a very full movie yeah it is and it's just interesting, you know, to see the people that it's inspired. I read somewhere that it was Sam Raimi's favorite movie. That wouldn't surprise uh, me. It's one of Stanley Kubrick's favorite movies. Wouldn't surprise and, me. And, like, last week you were saying that you thought that Indiana Jones was based off of Charlie Allnut from The African Queen. Well, I said Indiana Jones felt, al- or African Queen I thought was gonna be like Indiana Jones, and it was not. Okay, well, in this movie... Uh, Steven Spielberg has cited that Dobbs is the main inspiration for Indiana Jones. 
I mean, the look, yeah, I can the, see that. The look, yeah, you know, the adventurer just, you know, Indy's good. Indy doesn't go evil. Uh, but um, with Treasure of, the, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Well, I mean, we should talk about its Oscars because... Oh, yeah, because this thing had like a, a solid Oscar run. Yeah, it was nominated for four Oscars. It won three of them. And it also kind of created history where a father and son won Oscars at the same show. Is, that's like the only time that's happened, right? I, I can't think of any other one that would do uh, it. The only one I could think of would be like the Brolins. But I don't know if they've done it in the same show. That's true. But yeah, so um, Best Supporting Actor was won by Walter Houston. Best Director and Best Screenplay was given to John Huston. Just had to get two out of the gate on, like, his fifth movie. Oh, yeah. yeah it's just what you do. But I love that, you know, reading about the movie and the making of the movie, that the Houstons enjoyed working together so much that it was just, uh, John Huston said it was, like, one of the greatest moments in his life, you know, winning the Oscar for doing a film with his dad. And his dad was kind of like, I had so much fun doing this with you. I think we need to shoot a movie every year together and they were so game and unfortunately walter houston passed away that next year oh really yeah so they is this like his last performance i don't think it's his last there might be another movie but this is his last performance with his son wow that's got to be a way granted i john houston granted sad he lost his dad but it's got to feel good because it was his only is his dad's only oscar win they got to do it together it's probably i would say it's probably his dad's best performance oh yeah also, I wanted to um, talk about it because there's the one Oscar they didn't win. And you you look at it and it was nominated for four of them. You know, mm-hmm. screenplay, actor, director, best picture, yeah. and Hamlet won out of it. Mm-hmm. But how... Do you think this could have won best picture now? Or is this, this a movie that's... Okay, you think definitely? Yeah, definitely. I don't think there's anything problematic with it now. Um there's also a thing where you know it's not like it's stuck in the 40s i think if you were to show this or screen this now people are able to comprehend to it it's not like you know where we see old comedies and we watch them now and it's like well no one's really going to understand that reference if they know history or movie history Mm -hmm. i think this is easy enough to follow and understand you know basically the rise and fall of a character like what we get with Dobbs. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this would work now. And I think if it hit the Oscars now... It would it would it, have a run? Yeah, it would definitely have a run. Because I know a lot of movies now, like you've mentioned this before, where you know the best picture months in advance. You know the one that's going to win. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have that with the Globes, even though the Globes have been around just as long as the Oscars. But you see it at the Golden Globes. Okay, this movie completely sweeped. And once we get to Oscar season, you know that that movie's probably going to sweep. And it's kind of surprising when some movies don't. Mm-hmm. But it's more common now that we see a picture take home everything. And I think maybe back then that wasn't too much of a thing yet. It's hard to say movies now, we get more... I don't think movies get more sweeps now. Usually you get an Oscar that... You get a movie that gets, you know, four Oscars. Like five Oscars. That's mm-hmm. a lot of fucking Oscars. Yeah. But... I feel movies back then, especially around this time, the movie that got, like, Best Picture was the one that was the safest, that fell in line with everything. It's Shakespeare. Yeah, this Hamlet one this year, so it was Shakespeare, right? It's Olivier. It probably was a big production. Mm -hmm. It's probably a beautiful movie. 
Treasure of the Sierra Madre has just stood the test of time as one of the greatest films of all time. And for, from what I saw in there, it looked like Hamlet was also done by Warner Brothers, so the studio was good either way. Yeah, and the other thing is, Jack Warner was probably like, fuck you, Houston, you're already getting two, I ain't giving you another one. Uh, possibly, possibly. But um, what else do we want to talk about the treasure of the Sierra Madre? Okay, so I, I've got two fun trivia facts. Okay, you got this is the booze trivia moment. We do. So... We know the scene where Dobbs lifts up the rock and there's that venomous... Uh, the Gila monster, I think is what they call oh it. Oh my god, that thing terrified me when I saw it. Cause <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. You don't you don't like lizards. I like the cute little lizards, but, you know... Uh, oh, the cute little lizards. Like the ones that are the size of your palm, not the ones where you kind of got... You gotta wrangle them a little bit. Yeah, you know, one that could eat me, not so much. So apparently, John Huston played a prank on Bogart during this. So... They have the scene where he goes and he lifts the rock and you, you get that expression from him where he's just completely terrified of what he's seeing. So apparently John Houston had put a rat trap underneath it. So when Bogart went to move the rock, it caught his finger and <sighs> scared the crap out of him. So I, I've, I've snapped rat traps on my fingers before. That is not a fun experience. It's not. And especially when you're not expecting it and you're just, you know... I'm acting, I'm lifting this rock to, you know, so I can give my, my scared, you know, uh, performance, my scared performance. Yeah. And then, no, I get my finger snapped by a, a mousetrap. Yeah. I'm going to panic a little bit. So it was kind of cool to see that they did have fun on the set. They did, you know, do some pranks with each other because what yeah. else are you going to do in the middle of the desert? Well, that's the thing about John Houston, because. I think a lot of people have this idea that to be a director, you have to be kind of an asshole and you have to be like Stanley Kubrick, where you do a thousand takes of everything because you have something so perfect in your head. Yeah. You need to make their your actors are tools to get you there. Yeah. Or, you know, it's a thing where I'm a director and your actors, I tell you what to do and we don't really mesh together we don't hang out together yeah but that's like very wrong like yeah. john houston he is like he's very jokey on set he's very like apparently very like personable mm -hmm. with a lot of the actors he worked with most of the actors he worked with really enjoyed working with him because he got them to great performances mm -hmm. and also the whole kubrick myth of making you do a thousand takes because you're not doing it right yeah because he's a perfectionist no, he's making people do a thousand takes because he doesn't know what he wants until he sees it. Right. And he wants you as the actor to to kind of work, you know, like mm -hmm. do stuff, make play, you yeah, know, it, act. I, I could kind of tie that into with like being a photographer. You know, I can have an idea in my head and I can get my model there and I could shoot it and it doesn't tee up to the idea that I had. And then you just kind of have to work with the model, get them to move and get them to do other things. And then you get this beautiful shot that you could have never imagined. Yeah. And, that, and I think that's the thing, because John Houston knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah. You know, he's again, they called him like the sniper. You know, mm. he only got the shots he absolutely needed. Exactly. So it's it's just interesting to see how Houston kind of worked as a director and how like this. He was very jokey on set. Yeah. He tried to make everybody, you know, kind of the kind of have a good time yeah. even though they were in the middle of the desert and probably had to sleep on the floor that night but, or in those cool old trailers or the cool old trailers but you had one more trivia fact for I us. do I have one more boo fact and it is about John Houston oh nice so apparently 
one night while they were filming, they had a like a doctor assigned to their unit out there because you never know if someone's going to get bit by a bug or someone gets sick, kind of like all the, the things that happened with the African queen where everyone got sick. Mm. So apparently one night he decided to smoke weed with his dad. Of course. Because, you know, out in the desert. You know, it's kind of what you do. You, you and your dad are buddies, I guess. Let's try this. So apparently the doctor had to come out and calm him down because he had a bad reaction to the weed. <laughs> so after that, I guess he vowed he was never going to smoke it again. So I was like, can you imagine Let John Houston in the 40s out there in the middle of the night smoking weed and freaking out? I, John Houston, that, that was probably a dangerous situation. He probably had a gun on him. He's like... They're coming from the trees, boys. <laughs> the pink elephants are after me. Starts blasting off mm-hmm. into the night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that okay. That was a fun fact. Yeah, I I thought that would be a good one to end the episode on. And now that we're ending the episode, your final thoughts on Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Is it a treasure? Is this movie gold? It was a treasure, and not that big, you know, fool's gold that they thought they found in the beginning, the big rock, you know, like like, like real gold. Yeah, you know, this was real gold. It was that fine, you know pretty powder it's like that sandy stuff that doesn't show up in black and white it doesn't it just looks like more sand and yeah. th- th- that was the uh, the heartbreaking part of the movie where dobbs when he's being killed they go and they cut open the sacks with the gold in it and it just falls into the sand and you're just like oh my god and when <laughs> howard and Curtin are riding in and the, and the sandstorms coming in yeah. and they're being blasted by the gold but it doesn't matter because it's just it's all meaningless man it's meaningless and you have to laugh because it's been returned to the earth from where they took it. I mean, I love that part. But yeah, two thumbs up from me. Really good movie. Uh, would recommend. I would also give this movie two thumbs up. I think I've gone on record many times in this episode that I really love this movie. Uh, great big personal favorite. I really enjoy it. Would recommend it to anybody. I think this is, again, Bogart's best performance in my opinion. It's mm-hmm. my favorite John Huston-directed film. Uh, really love it. Two big thumbs up. Go find it. Yes. It's on HBO Max. And what else is on HBO Max? Is it the next movie we're watching? Uh, it's not. We're going to have to dig for that movie. But it's a movie that we both haven't seen before. Oh, really? Yes. And I thought it would, it would be the perfect way to end Bogart Month mm-hmm. with The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep. Famous name. I don't know what happens in the movie. It is a noir, and it stars Bogart and Bacall. Ooh, fancy. I think this might be my first Bacall movie, too. Really? I think so. I'm gonna find out as soon as I see the lady, but we'll we'll figure it out. Yeah, so it should be a good time next week. But if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. We release slideshow versions, video versions, whatever you want to call them, on that channel of this very podcast. And soon we'll be releasing stuff that are a little bit more high production value, hopefully. Yeah. But like, comment, subscribe there. And if you wanted to follow us on social media, where can they go? You can find us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, trivia, and our random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.